You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. You know, when I came to the city, I mean, accessibility is huge. And here, working in local government, we have to build products for all. We can't say I'm going to ignore XYZ population because I just don't have time, resources, or energy to pay attention to you or talent, right? We don't have that luxury because as local government, we are here to serve all residents, all taxpayers, documented or undocumented. And that is, you know, that is our burden. Uh, That is our responsibility. And that is why we exist. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. I've had numerous guests on this show that have spoken to how technology can build digital equity across communities. And government has been working to do this for years, but the pandemic has made people realize how important it is to bridge the digital divide. This, along with several other challenges facing government, has led to the creation of the Chief Innovation Officer role across states and cities in the United States, and is even becoming prevalent in EMEA and APAC as well. In today's episode, we're going to spend some time with one of the best that's out there, Jordan Sun. He's the Chief Innovation Officer for the City of San Jose, right in the middle of Silicon Valley. Before he took on this role last year, he spent 11 years with the U.S. Army and recently returned from leading a special operations joint task force with U.S. and British military engineers in Afghanistan, where he built and launched a software product for crisis response against Taliban and ISIS attacks. Digital equity is also something that's really important to him, and we'll talk about that in the show today as well. In fact, as Sun took the reins in the innovation office and began pushing San Jose forward in digital inclusion, the city received praise at the national level and earned the silver status for the 2020 What Works Cities Certification, recognizing city leaders for using evidence and data to make decisions. This made San Jose one of only 16 cities across the country to achieve certification at the silver level. His extensive experience in public sector and technology has prepared him to tackle critical issues like this, but also assist the city with economic recovery in the face of COVID-19, which is a big ask. Welcome to the show, Jordan. Thanks for joining us today, buddy. Thank you for having me. Before we jump into your role uh, with the city of San Jose, I think you have a really interesting background working with the army. You were actually deployed for four months and were supporting kind of crisis response against the Taliban and ISIS attacks. Tell us a little bit about your your role in in that launch. Well, yeah, you know, this is um, I, I, my army career uh, in the reserves has always found a unique path of um, often it aligned very well with uh, my civilian career and what I was doing uh, uh, civilian-wise at the time. Um, and so this was my second tour in Afghanistan. My first time was back in 2012. Uh, and it was, uh, for me, a very heartwarming and important uh, experience uh, to be back there uh, in hopes of you know, continuing uh, the, the work that we were doing. Um, and, and this time around, it was through a technology lens of supporting Afghan special operations units uh, and, and working with also NATO and U.S. special operations units um, to deliver technology solutions uh, that were able to solve uh, critical pain points uh, in the battlefield uh, that 
uh, otherwise uh, was usually too manual uh, and too cumbersome and often hit uh, XYZ friction points uh, that uh, made it almost nearly impossible for units to sometimes work together, especially when it came to a crisis event. So when you're working with your internal groups, obviously deploying software with folks that kind of are native to it, it's a little bit easier. What were some of the challenges that you experienced when you're working with the, the Afghan special forces and maybe technology isn't isn't quite as native to them as some of the, the forces that we have in the US? What was that like? Yeah, actually, you'd be surprised. Um, and so I would really divide the camp in terms of your users, uh, between it, it really between two, two big camps. Um, and especially with the commandos, you generally had those that were a lot more literate uh, than the traditional troops. Uh, but literacy was fundamentally the biggest challenge many times. Um, because, you know, Afghanistan, after going through a 20-year journey, was still very much so in the process of having government institutions stood up like education systems, formal education systems, with the appropriate certifications. And so uh, literacy was a challenge. Uh, but the other part that was unique for us was then, okay, well, if literacy is the challenge to why we can communicate, how can technology, you know, where we have simple to use interfaces, then be leveraged uh, for folks uh, on the ground to be able to report things uh, if literacy is a, is, is a, is a challenge for them uh, when it came to using technology. Uh, but then on the flip side of things, you know, as I mentioned, those who were literate uh, on the commando side, they were often very literate. Um, you know, educational backgrounds spanned from folks receiving, you know, bachelor's degrees from West Point, um, our, our U.S. military academy, um, to folks having attended graduate studies here, uh, to various military courses uh, that other officers uh, in the Army uh, or, or, or Marine Corps would attend, um, to also uh, folks who just have received a significant amount of training in other uh, NATO countries, uh, from Turkey uh, to uh, the UK. And so there was this entire class of very well-educated folks uh, that were very used to operating both English as well as the local dialects um, that were actually incredible early adopters uh, for us to be able to bridge uh, both the ideation and sort of user research phase of, of the project, but also when it came to evangelizing and launch. That's really interesting. And I would imagine, especially in your role now um, or any technology role that you're in from a leadership perspective, focused on technology adoption is a big part of kind of a rollout. What did you kind of glean from the situation in Afghanistan in terms of rolling things out and getting adoption? Yeah, you know, I think the biggest thing is just how humbling it was um, to be able to try to design um, products, uh, for, uh, whether there was mobile or web-based uh, experiences um, in a 2G, 3G environment. Uh, occasionally in the bigger cities, uh, well, like for instance, I was in Jalalabad uh, or in Kandahar, there were 4G, uh, Kabul as well. Um, but the rest of the areas, you know, you're down to 2G, 3G. Um, but it's still amazing the fact that you have 2G, 3G out there, but it's also very humbling in terms of that is your bandwidth and latency constraint. Um, the second part is uh, then thinking about also really, you know, like, what is the actual problem being solved at each level um, and understanding that you are not trying to create a panacea approach uh, through technology solutions um, where one, you know, one size fits all. Um, and I think that was a very humbling approach too, to then really get 
very, very basic in terms of what is the crux problem that you want to try to solve and then build off of that. Um, and I think the third part is, you know, as you mentioned, we talked about literacy here. Uh, you know, when I came to the city, I mean, accessibility is huge, right? And, and here, working in local government, we have to build products for all. We can't say I'm going to ignore XYZ population because I just don't have time, resources, or energy to pay attention to you or talent, right? We don't have that luxury because as local government, we are here to serve all residents, all taxpayers, uh, documented or undocumented. And, 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 and that is, you know, that is our burden. Uh, that is our responsibility. And that is why we exist. So let's, let's jump then to your role now. Um, what brought you to government? Obviously you're, you're working with the U S army. Um, you've been in various technology roles. What was that draw to public service for you? Yeah. You know, my, my public service career, you know, started with the army and still continue with the army after 14 years later with, with close to 14 years of time and service. Um, I also at the time, uh, when there was, you know, the discussion of the rise of China, um, uh, I, I, I decided to serve several years in, as well as a cyber threat. I decided to serve several years in the state department, uh, as a diplomat. Um, and then, so at each point in my time, I found like, Hey, look, I have a, a set of skills and perspectives that if not me, then who was the clear message that I felt like came from the folks that needed me, um, coupled with a certain event or crisis. Right. And so every time I joined or volunteered, there was a crisis, whether it was the surge in Afghanistan, the withdrawal in Afghanistan, um, whether it was, uh, the rise of, you know, great power competition, uh, or at this time COVID. And so, um, you know, I, I, I couldn't sleep at night after meeting with, uh, Sam, uh, mayor, Sam Licardo, uh, his team, uh, Jim, uh, Jim Reed, his chief of staff and, and the mayor's office of technology innovation team. Um, and, uh, and I just, I felt like I needed to do something about it. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a pretty marginalized community myself down in Texas. Uh, and that always shaped how I grew up. It always shaped how I viewed educators and public education systems, because I fundamentally believe that the magnet program that I tested into that I was not zoned to was one of the fundamental reasons that actually changed the trajectory of my life and opened my eyes um, to being intellectually curious and, and, and to understand the importance of academic rigor um, in, in order to liberate oneself from your zip code. And so when you think about San Jose and you think about Silicon Valley, that's the thing that, that pops into my head. Um, mm -hmm. It's interesting. You don't really think about a, a lack of equity around uh, digital inclusion. You, you think this is kind of the center of the universe when it comes to technology. What's it like then working in government in the heart of Silicon Valley, where I would imagine now after talking to you, you've kind of spoken about you have the haves which really have and then you have the have-nots how do you serve such uh different populaces yeah you know and i think it's all relative right it's just like you know happiness is relative um the have and the have-not sometimes is a relative discussion but i think what is particularly unique and what attracted me to san jose is that we're the 10th largest city in the u.s we're the largest in northern california um but we have a such a unique relationship with silicon valley as well where you know, when you think about, and, and, and to be completely blunt, when you think about the wealthiest individuals, the wealthiest individuals choose not to usually live in, in, in San Jose, you know, that, that come from tech, right? They, they live in 
uh, I hate to say it, you know, like an Atherton type zip code or they live in, you know, in, in San Francisco. Um, and San Jose is, I think, the closest to what we have in terms of things have gotten a lot better, but yet the inequities still exist. Um, we still have, you know, thousands of people who are homeless. Uh, we have 10%, a, a, a 10% uh, poverty rate, uh, which is so happens to also reflect a 10% digitally divided community of, of households. Um, and so when you look at it, yeah, we're a city of over a million people, but we have over 100,000 people that don't have access to broadband internet. And we're the capital of Silicon Valley. Why is that? Um, and so when I looked at the city, I said, look, you know, um, the diversity uh, was very, actually very similar to how I grew up uh, down in Texas, uh, both uh, heavy Spanish speaking population, heavy uh, Southeast Asian and, and, and Northeast Asian populations. Um, and the socioeconomic divides were very clear with sort of national champion industries. And in, in Houston, it was oil. Here, it is tech. And so, you know, the, the unique similarities I thought were very interesting where, okay, if we can solve it here in San Jose, my gosh, can you imagine if we can be able to then take what we've learned and try to help other cities, not maybe in California or even further out, help similarly solve that? And that is the unique challenge uh, that my team has as the tech and innovation team is to really take a look at what's in our backyard that we can borrow and implement um, and also get the talent to be mobilized uh, to be able to solve for that. But to do it in a way that is non sort of what I call innovation theater that, you know, credit to Professor Steve Blank, uh, Stanford, uh, or even equity theater, uh, which I think often policy leads to that. Uh, where people, you know, dress up a pig, but, um, and, and just end up moving on from it. Well, it's interesting because I think some people might look at it in the reverse of kind of what you said. And, and you mentioned if we can solve it in San Jose, maybe other groups can solve it too. But I, I would think maybe because of where you are, you do have access to more of the technologies than perhaps some small city in, in the middle of the country. Would you think? So I don't think small and medium-sized cities are without the ability to access the technology and the resources. And we also saw that very clearly with the pandemic, where a lot of non-Northern California or Google headquartered cities, you know, where Google did not have a physical footprint, uh, were being helped uh, by Google and Google.org um, and, and, and the products and technology talent that they brought to the table. Um, and so... I think for what is interesting for us, though, is that we have the luxury of actually being able to draw on some of that talent um, right here in our backyards and actually physically be represented here. At the same time, they also generally know what's going on in the community because they could just drive right down the street to it uh, from wherever else they live. And so, and sometimes they often do live in San Jose, which is great too. Um, and we get a lot of product designers, um, um, product managers, and engineers who do live in San Jose and they want to give back locally. And so I think that's a unique talent. Um, I think it's not with outside the grass with small, medium-sized cities, but they might not have the luxury to lean on the people uh, that are readily available, uh, but to also then have their own staff because they're smaller, be able to dedicate time and energy to understanding, thinking through these problems as a futures unit. Is it, when it comes to talent, is it a little bit of a dichotomy? Because I think it's fantastic, first of all, that you have some of these private sector folks at some of the largest organizations in the world kind of giving back time. 
but does it make it challenging competing for talent for full-time staff on your team when you're competing against the, the likes of a, a Google and Apple, that kind of thing? You know, in, in some ways uh, it doesn't uh, because the jobs are so different, right? And so when I expect someone from tech to join us, I expect them to have an incredible sense of humility, of empathy, um, as well as being very open-minded to the experience that they're about to receive. Um, you know, I don't promise folks a rose garden, and, and I'm very clear on that. Um, and they're going to take a pay cut, uh, and they're going to potentially have less income stability because sometimes some city roles are contracted for one to two years. You know, for um, voted in by by X Y Z budget benches from the council, and that's all you're going to expect. You know, uh, and so. This is a very unique position where people really need to feel motivated to give back. And that's where I, I think, you know, it was a very humbling experience and rewarding experience for me working with my city counterparts uh, on the city manager side is that often I meet a ton of people that they have every other opportunity outside. They have opportunities in industry. They have opportunities in other cities that have easier jobs, but they choose to stay here because they feel very motivated by the mission. And, and so I think that's the most important thing. And so it's okay for me to not be able to compete for a sort of quote unquote best in class talent, because sometimes some of the problems I'm solving uh, have already been solved in the industry. So I'm not looking for someone to intellectually pioneer something, you know, what I am looking for is someone to be able to pioneer this within the construct of our system and within the construct of constrained resources. And then also often the fact that you have no luxury, you don't have the luxury of only serving a high willingness to pay category users. Um, that is, I think, uh, the, the, the challenge, you know, and it's, it's a high friction environment. It's a high contact sport environment. Uh, if you work on the political side, yeah, it, it can get quite nasty. Um, and you have to be very careful what you do and say. Um, but in the end, you really have to believe in your bone that you actually care about the people, your neighbors, uh, and, and uh, thinking about maybe, you know, that mother with a uh, single mother with two kids who just immigrated here, that's the person you try, you're trying to help, especially when, uh, you know, the pandemic was at its all time high. I think it's great that you understand that around kind of the talent competition side of things too, because I've spoken to a lot of leaders and it's kind of trending this way where they understand they can be at an advantage, especially with some of the newer generations coming in with that draw to public service to kind of be uh, that landing spot for them to give back um, through government. So I, I think it's great that from a leadership perspective, you do understand that. And it sounds like you're really keeping your team aligned and focused on on what the mission really is, which I think, just, just my opinion, I think that makes it easier to come to work every day when you know kind of who you're fighting for in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, I think you, you hit it on the nail and something else that I, I just want to touch on, which you said, you know, this younger generation that is being tapped. Yeah, I am such a proponent and, and believer in Gen Z and younger millennials. Um, I think their interest in social justice, in fighting systemic issues, they're tired of it in this country. Right. And, and they're tired of a way that it just it, it was the way it was. So it needs to be the way it is now. Um, that is an unacceptable excuse to retain the status quo. And I think you have this immense group of young people that say, I have ideas. I have motivation. 
and I have skills and let me help. And they take on immense leadership roles. You have, you know, we were a big participation of the organization Coding at Ford, where we had all these fellows come in from data science to product to engineering to to design. Um, and so, um, you know, it was just a fantastic experience that we had. I know uh, Chris Kwong over there is uh, who came from Coding Forward is now setting up, you know, the digital, uh, the U.S. digital core uh, to continue that. And where I see this country going is that. This is very similar, I think, to what I experienced when I was younger um, as a, you know, as a post 9-11 veteran, where I felt like this was my generation's war and that we needed to do something about it. And it shouldn't just be on the burden of a few uh, Americans and, and, and often immigrant families and, and, and families of color fighting this war. Uh, we should all give. And that was the motivation that I had to try to hopefully make a better, more peaceful world. Now. Fast forward, you have all these younger people that say, I'm a young technologist, I can give back. And they care about these social issues here, right in our own neighborhoods, and they want to give back. And I think that's just a tremendous amount of energy and and untapped motivation that we have yet even begun to explore as Gen Z continue to mature, go to you know uh, graduate college or graduate school, and then get their first jobs. And I love to make sure that we harness that talent going forward. So talking about going forward, I know you've spoken before about what the future is for the city of San Jose. So uh, from your point of view, where do you see the future um, for your city? Yeah, you know, I think the key things right now that we need to get done is, look, we need to bridge the digital divide. Um, And I think we need to do it not just on the connectivity side, which is, you know, we've already deployed uh, public Wi-Fi that is has covered up to 100,000 residents uh, for free public Wi-Fi. We need to go further than that. Uh, we need to think about um, digital literacy and, and, and long-term device access. Um, and so, you know, part of it is an economics problem in terms of just reducing the economic uh, accessibility or frictions, right? But I think more long-term, uh, the, the digital literacy piece is where we need to really be able to, if we do not have a national standard uh, for digital literacy beyond the UNESCO determined standard that you know is a little bit more international, uh, but we need to evolve those definitions for what is needed in uh, a post-COVID age, uh, and 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 the the the, the skills, uh, the 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 safety guardrails that are required need to all be in place, and we need to be able to make sure that that is uh, made across for all residents uh, to be able to have so that they can have a safe and equitable experience online. So that's one of our primary focuses. Um, the second part is I'm really big on transportation, you know, and I think as traffic comes back, you know, people are naturally going to come back to work in some degree. It's not going to look like the same it was, um, but, you know, you're seeing on the highways already the congestion. And so what I am really interested in is thinking about what are some you know, barring from my healthcare experience, like what are some non-invasive ways um, that can create elegant regional transportation solutions to get to the multimodal cities that we want? And so I'm a big fan of EVATOL, electric vertical takeoff and landing. I believe cities should have a stronger voice and stance on electric vertical takeoff and landing when it comes to regional transportation hubs that are being built, especially when you think about vertiport planning. And if those are the future hubs of transportation activity for the region, they will also be darn sure uh, potential hubs for economic activity and social activity. And so we really have to then rethink, okay, you know, how do we equitably distribute this 
infrastructure so we don't create the same old world problems of both economic inequalities coupled with uh, congestion. What about and then I think that just real real quick that you've you touched on you touched on transportation and and congestion. Um, I know as as we were as we were conversating before the show, we touched on the fact that San Jose is uh, a member of the G20 Smart City Alliance and mm-hmm. um, that one of two cities in the U.S. From a transportation perspective, are you involved with any of the technologies that might be supporting the congestion or, or the safety of vehicles out on the road? Yeah, I mean, we have, we've always had multiple uh, pilots here and there, you know, we've had electrification plans, we've obviously had, you know, as part of the after, I think the effects of congestion and and bad traffic is often, you know, bad road experiences uh, that lead to Vision Zero issues. Um, And so we've been a big Vision Zero city. Uh, But I haven't, you know, and and look, you know, our our mayor and vice mayor are are also on the VTA boards. Um, But I think we haven't really had I think a hard discussion uh, in terms of what does 10 years, 15 years down the road look like uh, in terms of actually just like stop sticking with the old and let's think outside the box. And I know, you know, I know my mayor has challenged uh, folks uh, in the regional transportation space about that to even looking at, you know, autonomous bus uh, systems uh, that create, you know, a better digital experience also for the rider with integrated payment systems. So there's a lot on the table right now. Uh, I think, I think sometimes people just need to call the shots and make a decision. <laughs> you know, just give it a try. Well, it sounds, it sounds like st- kind of what you were saying before about working in a big city, right? Where you, it takes yeah. so long to get things done versus uh, versus being a smaller city. And I get it. You know, like, look, you are impacting a ton of people's lives, right? You have a ton of union jobs on the line and their families, right? You have uh, all across a ton of real estate and other investments that went in, small business investments that went in to saying, like, I depend on these lines. Um, and then, you know, at the same time, by the way, a lot of these transportation infrastructures, guess what? They sit on a ton of fiber. <laughs> and so there's like a broadband angle there, too, which is so uniquely interesting that people, I think, don't often fully uh, understand just how linked this like entire organism is. And so, yeah, it is complex, but, you know, I, I, I do think we should probably just try a little bit of something and, and do an A-B test, but, you know, it's a lot harder than, than, than you would think to do an A-B test. What about, what about experience? One of the things you mentioned yeah. was kind of the literacy, digital literacy um, and having that safe digital experience. But one of the drivers that people have spoken about, even, even myself, is how kind of consumer uh, expectations are driving government forward and, or maybe you should say pulling them forward in some regards, mm-hmm. um, to provide a better digital experience mm-hmm. across all platforms, right? Make it omni-channel, but you work in a city where I can't imagine there being a higher consumer expectation than right in Silicon Valley with how a citizen would engage with private sector and public sector. So yep. what does that experience look like and how are you kind of building off some of those expectations that are that are driving that forward. Yep. Well, so, you know, for the last year or so, uh, we've been ha- undergoing uh, sort of a, a, a vision that I've had since joining the city. You know, I've been with the city for a little bit over a year now, but it's, it was really around, you know, after I did a little bit of due diligence, understanding like, hey, what are some key priorities that need to get done? So we created this building better basics vision for a smart city. 
Um, and I, I don't even like using the term smart city. I really prefer to just call it a technology-oriented city, right? But long story short is the, the builder building better basics vision is the first pillar. There's three pillars. The first pillar is data. Uh, we need to be more data-driven in both our operations, our policy-making, uh, as well as our program management uh, and, and, and product management. Um, the second pillar is on digital experiences. Uh, we need to improve our ability to deliver digital experiences because guess what? Um, our residents, especially post-COVID, depend on us for bi-directional communication uh, in real time, uh, as well as service delivery. And we owe it to them that much. And that, I think, meets your second point. And the third pillar is actually thinking about our wireless infrastructure, uh, both from an IoT standpoint, as well as uh, overall broadband stance uh, in terms of our overall connectivity. Um, and so when you think about data, data is the brain of the city uh, that drives what's going on. Um, the digital product experiences are the eyes, ears, nose, and mouth and hand of the city that actually guides the delivery and, and communicates with the residents. Um, and then the third pillar is the rest of the nervous system uh, that feels uh, what's going on inside the city. And so we've been ha hard at work, my team, you know, we went from four to 40 at, uh, at, at one point. We're scaling back down a little bit now. Um, but we really got a lot of data transformation, um, data science work accomplished in terms of change management inside of City Hall. The digital product experiences, uh, we've, uh, by the end of this year, we would have built three products that were solving key pain points in the community and hopefully taking those lessons learned and figuring out how do we create a unified uh, digital experience uh, for all our residents um, through the 311 app. Uh, but we've done so far, you know, zillified mental health resources for youth and young adults. Um, we are in the process of doing something really cool in police community relations um, and focused on privacy. And then uh, we have another one, which is uh, partnering with a major tech company to look at ways to streamline our benefits uh, access, accessing all our benefits that are available in the city and potentially county, and also creating then a screening tool to be able to match that so that families can very quickly get the help that they need and know what they actually qualify for. Um, but the goal of it, to your point, is that we do need to have a streamlined digital experience uh, that is a, you know, a, a single source of truth, if you will. Um, it is, but I don't want it to look like a, a, a WeChat or uh, Ali pay experience for, for those who have used those apps, because I think our users are a little bit more different in terms of the experiences they want and the simplicity and elegance that they want. And so we have to work through that. And I don't believe mobile apps should be the end all be all. I'm okay with a web app that, you know, is built on React and highly uh, flexible across platforms and much easier to maintain. So we need to work through those things. Um, I, if I were to add one more thing, I think for a lot of cities, when it comes to better product experiences, I don't think it's really interviewing enough users. Um, I don't think it's sometimes even the product management uh, uh, a process, you know, of going from discovery to feature release or product launch. Uh, I, I don't even think it's a part product marketing issue of reaching enough users uh, or residents and making them aware of it. I think fundamentally, actually, it starts with a lot of times with procurement and having the hard decision to make, do you build this in-house or do you contract it out? And if you contract it out like most cities do, uh, because they can't afford a fleet of uh, a full stack engineering team, um, you're going to have a lot of pains there. And I think 
often it lies into bad contracting that is not scoped out towards outcomes that a software product that is consumer facing should deliver for its residents. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of I think government leaders that would say procurement is certainly a roadblock that they have to navigate on a regular basis, and they they would agree with you. Um, you mentioned something around partnerships too, uh, based on proximity and, and your procurement issues. Are you ever able to to kind of drive a pilot forward um, with these partners to have it as a testing bed to maybe supersede some of the procurement issues on the front end to get it going in in market? Yeah, so I think that's a unique benefit of working with the mayor's office versus the broader uh, city manager contract, right? And so I love my city manager office colleagues, um, but they are true operators, right? And, and they do not have sometimes the luxury to peer around a corner that I do. Um, and I can, even when it comes to hiring and firing, you know, my team is very flexible, um, much more flexible than uh, the mandated headcounts and, and, and uh, hiring constraints that the city manager's office has. And so with that being said, when it comes to procurement, it's the same thing where I can engage in a partnership that is potentially free or near free. Um, and we can get something done to give it a trial, you know? Um, and I think that is the unique part of being in my office versus on their end. But Honestly, when it comes to this, anything that needs to be scaled across the city, I need to get them on board. And I very much so make them a case. This is why we've had this new uh, model that we redefined the Mayor's Office Tech Innovation, Modi, as we are the City Hall's venture studio. Uh, and we're the venture studio because we do the upfront work of being sort of peering around the corner as a futures unit. We do the ideate, explore, validate phase, right? And things that go through that phase one make it to phase two. Uh, is then, okay, then we try to find product market fit and and try to take it from zero to one. And then and phase, that phase two, we often call a lot of products as well before then we go into full on launch um, and then thinking about spinning out the venture. You know, as a, as a venture studio, usually you don't own the companies yourself, you spin it out to another team. Um, so we either spin it out to the mothership, aka the city manager's office enterprise, larger enterprise, or we spin it out to a nonprofit partner that is capable of sustaining this efforts. And, and some of the products that we are doing are going along those fashions. Others are in the data science area that have gone to the enterprise. Um, and so that's the unique deal that we have with our city manager colleagues and, and partners, as well as nonprofit partners. Um, but when it comes down to procurement, I am pushing things on procurement. Um, I, I have been pushing. Uh, there's a lot of pressure there. Uh, we're going to continue to ramp up the pressure. Uh, because we need to be reflective of um, you know the innovation uh, that has pervaded through other departments that have pervaded through the entire region. And the last thing we can do uh, to to hamper that innovation is simply say we have archaic rules that are made a decade plus uh, that no longer are applicable to this real world environment post COVID, uh, and that we've refused to learn the lessons, the hard lessons. Uh, that we've learned where lives were lost in our communities uh, because we do not procure efficiently. Um, we do not procure with outcomes-based mindsets, uh, and we do not procure uh, with the lens of spending taxpayer dollars that most directly impact their daily lives in the most meaningful way possible. Have you have you been able to impact that that procurement process at all since, with your time there? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, it's in in what way? Yeah. So uh, one is, uh, you know, I don't have a ton of time here, right? I've got about a year and some change left. 
uh, because I leave when the mayor turns out. Uh, but we've already accelerated it on the roadmap um, in terms of the procurement review uh, in, in getting at uh, reform. And so this has been a conversation in the last really one or one and a half months that you, you're, you're hearing this. Um, but this is something that we're going to continue doubling down on. Uh, because as you mentioned, you know, when it comes to digital product experiences or anything else that involves technology or even non-technology related services and, 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 and uh, items being procured, it, it starts with, you know, like we need to change the, the entire, you know, when, when I think about a technology oriented city, it's not really about the technology. That's the key, right? The technology is only the V is only the, 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 the vehicle to take the passengers and the passengers are really the most important thing in this and the passengers in this aspect are outcomes for our residents. Um, and so if we don't focus on that, uh, we're never going to get there. And I think when I look at procurement, um, it, it is a significant roadblock on, on that highway. And we need to get rid of that roadblock. Well, I think we've had for a long period of time at every level of government, not just local, where we've had leaders that have gotten into roles and just got frustrated with procurement and threw their hands up. And that was it. It just just was a frustration. And I think now uh, with some of the newer generations growing into these leadership roles, they're taking a look at things and saying, no, this can be done better. Um, and there is, like you said, there is the outcomes-based approach. Part of it is that poll we talked about earlier to public service and wanting to see change and wanting to see it being outcome first. So uh, kudos for you for driving that forward, not just throwing your hands up and saying, okay, I'll ride out my time here and actually trying to impact that change. I think that's, that's certainly an important lesson that somebody can take away from this. Absolutely. Absolutely. You touched on data being kind of the brain of the organization. Before we wrap up, I kind of wanted to pull on that thread a little bit. What are you doing at San Jose to allow your organization to become more data-driven and, and even on behalf of the citizen, provide a more personalized touch on service delivery? So when I came to the city, I was often shocked that you know that the data efforts were being done in piecemeal across um, you know across individual sort of units, right? And uh, there was no unified sort of clear strat coherent strategy um that is focused on you know what are the obviously the the, the, the use case scenarios to the analy- analytics uh and, and tools available uh to then thinking about you know the back end and, and overall infrastructure that is necessary and so as well as then uh, the, the governance policies and, and and privacy um and so we took all this um, and so we decided to say, okay, look, we need to prioritize data because it's arguably the most important thing that an enterprise needs to better do service delivery, to better be accountable to the residents, uh, and to be more transparent, both internally as well as externally, in terms of what are the things that are actually accomplished and what are the actual activities leading to those accomplishments or failures. Um, and so we built out our data science team with thanks to the Knight Foundation who kicked off a, a seed investment. Um, and uh, and subsequently we raised an additional monies um, through Coding Afford and other fellowships from MIT. Uh, we also uh, then got another grant from the San Jose Downtown Association. And we basically did six projects ranging from uh, parks and rec and community scholarships to housing to uh, improving our 311 experience um, and, and drive, taking data-driven approaches to product management uh, to also looking at uh, small business and economic development with through the lens of data. Um, 
And out of that, uh, we actually were then able to get a very a few things done uh, that were sort of top uh, top down driven and bottoms up refined uh, in terms of change management. Um, we had a budget message uh, from the mayor that was patched that solidified in the city manager's office a, uh, a data equity lead, which is essentially a senior data scientist uh, that is assisting the city manager, uh, the city manager to make data-driven decisions as well as have a coherent data strategy going forward, but also serve as the technical mentor for uh, budding data analysts. Uh, at the same time, we're in the process right now of securing a deal uh, with some major partners to provide data analyst training to our existing employees across the department so that we can create that King's Arthur round table, if you will, of, of data nights um, that can tangibly drive and do the grunt work, uh, drive change management, do the grunt work and feed additional um, uh, you know, uh, feedback and, and, and understanding in terms of how the organization can do better data uh, from the bottom up. Uh, that And they tend to be closest to the resident. And so we hope to be able to mar marry this together uh, and to be able to solidify a formal change management of this city actually being a data-driven, data science-driven city. Um, and then on the policy side of things, you know, we've had uh, very early on, it was a very great win for us. Uh, you know, a few months into my role, we got a digital privacy policy passed in council. Uh, and that laid the foundation for us to really be able to hire a chief privacy officer to be able to put money where our mouth is in terms of our values uh, and respect for our residents' privacy as well as having a concrete assessment uh, or framework to assess um, how we can best implement emerging technologies, uh, how we can retain uh, data, uh, it, it, you know, in only the most necessary ways possible. Uh, and then more importantly, how do we then incorporate feedback from the community as well as other uh, organizations that are deeply involved uh, in the progress of technology policy and privacy. I think it's great that you're investing in some of these roles and kind of bringing them on board, but even better, you use the word mentor in there and having somebody in there to help grow some of the folks that are kind of younger in their careers and understand the importance of, of data and how it can be used and manipulated on behalf of the citizens. I think that's, that's fantastic. Um, Jordan, yeah. I, I really appreciate the time today. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the audience? Yeah, look, you know, I think a lot of what we've done so far is change management. Um, it is not easy. Uh, it requires patience. Uh, but I think this is the perfect time to strike across all other cities as well. There's so much burden placed upon local government leaders and the operators that run the city. Um, and I think time now is now uh, for us to act, uh, for us to make swift moves and decisions um, and to lead to long-term impact and change in terms of the future resident experiences uh, that generations to come will appreciate. Hey, Jordan, thank you again. I appreciate it. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.